Right, good morning. You can turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 14. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to be together here on the Lord's Day to worship you, Father, as your people, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask now that you would help us to understand your word, that we would not only understand it, but, Father, live it out every day in our life. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, who came into this world to suffer and die for our sins. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in revealing to us our need for Christ and in sanctifying us and making us more like him. I pray for each one here, Father, that you would always, through your Spirit, make them sensitive to the word of God, that they might be obedient doers of the word and not just those who hear and go away and forget what they hear. Thank you for the word of God, especially the gospel of Christ as it goes forth today. Lord, may it, may it yield in a, an abundant harvest by those who hear it. And Father, we pray today that also even as those who are in distant lands preaching the gospel, that you would help them, Lord, to, to carry on faithfully in every situation, to trust you completely. I pray for those who could not be here today. Lord, that you might encourage them where they are through the comfort of the Holy Spirit and through the word of God which they have and which they can read for themselves. Now open up our eyes, Lord, and help us to see what you have for us here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last, last Sunday we looked at Romans chapter 14, the first four verses. And the situation in the churches of Rome was that of a controversy between Christians who were advocating that eating meat was wrong. They were more than likely recent Jewish converts to the faith, and they were still adhering to certain Mosaic laws that pertain to diet days and the drinking of wine here in Romans chapter 14. I remind you of what Paul said in Romans chapter 10 verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness that everyone, for everyone who believeth. A lot of times Christians have asked me, well, how much of the Mosaic law are we under? And my answer is none of it. Now, that would take a long time to explain. doesn't mean that you can go and live whatever, which way you want to live. Nine of the Ten Commandments, for instance, are repeated in the New Testament. The only one that is not was the, the Sabbath commandment. But the, the, the Mosaic Code was for Israel. It was un, under the law, the law of Moses. And one of the best articles I read on this was an article written by a biblical scholar named David Dorsey, and he wrote an article back in the Journal for Evangelical Theological Society in 1991. I'm sure this impresses you. Um, <laughs> the Law of Moses and the Christian, but I really enjoyed reading this and his perspective. I'm just going to read you a paragraph of what he says. He said, the Sinaitic Law Code, that was the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai was very specifically designed by God to regulate the lives of the West Semitic inhabitants of the southern Levant. That's the area where Israel was going through the wilderness journeys and then into the land of Israel. That's the southern Levant. But notice what he said here. 
and it's true. Nearly all the regulations of the corpus, that was that body of law, over 95% are so culturally specific, geographically limited, and so forth, that they would be completely inapplicable and in fact unfulfillable to Christians living throughout the world today. This fact alone should suggest that the corpus, that's the whole Mosaic law, is not legally binding upon Christians and that it cannot possibly represent the marching orders for the church. Amen. I agree with that. Diet, days, and drink were the main issues which created problems there in the church of Rome and the practice of biblical love was the solution. And when you stop and think about it, love is the corrected corrective for all of our relational problems, is it not? But the strong in faith were told here to receive the weak, those who, who believed they could only eat vegetables, and not to look down on them. The, the weak were told not to judge the strong for eating meat. So verse 1 says, Let him that is weak in the faith receive ye but not to doubtful disputations. For, only, for, for one believes that he may eat all things. Another who is weak eats only herbs, vegetables. Let not him that eat despises him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. So twice I mentioned the believers to receive, another believer who may be weak in the faith, or strong in the faith, because God has received him. And then actually, if in chapter 15, verse, if I could find it, verse 7 says, Therefore, receive one another. Receive, welcome one another, as Christ also, just Christ also received us to the glory of God. So we need to bear with one another, to welcome one another. The word means to come alongside them. Continuing on. Who are you to judge another man's servant? Oiketes, that's the, that Greek word means the household slave. There's household slave. There's six different words for servant in the New Testament. This is one for a household slave. To make his own master, he, uh, and to his own master he stands or falls. So yea, he should be holding up for God is able to make him stand. So the weak brother or the strong brother, they're really God's servants. So we're not to, to be in judgment upon them in disputable matters like this. But it's clear here from the text that the weak in faith were spiritually immature. The verb for weak there is astheneo, and it means to be sickly, to be diseased, or to be feeble. Now, it's not talking about physical illness or weakness. They are feeble in their understanding of the doctrines of the faith. And that's why it uses the definite article, let, let him that is weak in the faith, and that is the body of Christian doctrine. So they were weak in their understanding of the biblical doctrine and the teaching of Scripture, and they had a conscience which was not yet matured by the truth from God's Word. And they felt that they could not, not eat certain meat, meat that wasn't kosher perhaps, or drink wine, and that they had to ritualistic, ritualistically observe certain days or some may not observe certain days. I remember years ago, I had a couple here who left the church because 
we celebrated the birth of Christ on December the 25th, and they thought that was a pagan holiday, and so they left over the issue of days. So the word week is a familiar one in the New Testament, and Paul uses this word in Galatians chapter 4, verse 9, in the sense of the rudiments, the, the, the basic teachings of the Old Testament of the law, which could not justify anyone. Here's the verse, Colossians 4, 9. But now after that you have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak, that's the word right there, and beggarly, which mean powerless elements or principles, whereunto you desire again to be in bondage, you observe days and months and times and years. So there was disunity in the church of Galatia over the legalism of the Judaizers who were telling the believers, you, you need to be circumcised. You, you can't eat certain things. You need to observe certain days. Paul went on in Galatians chapter 5 because of what was taking place. And that's Paul's concern in Romans chapter 14. It was a plea for unity in the church, Romans chapter 14. But in Galatians 5, where disunity was coming in, he said in verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you are not consumed of one another. So once you get people fighting and biting and devouring one another, what's left? The fellowship is completely destroyed. It's consumed. Now, I want to mention to you this morning something that you all are very familiar with as you study your Bible. God expects the spiritual growth of his children. You plant a seed in the ground, and the expectation is that it will grow, and and it will become a, a, a plant or a tree. In Hebrew thinking, when they looked at an acorn, they didn't see an acorn. They saw the end product. They envisioned an oak tree. And when a person becomes a Christian, the Lord has the end product in view all along. He expects all those believers to become strong in their faith, to become mature believers. And Paul said to the Ephesians, this is why I labored among you so diligently, to present every one of you perfect in Christ, mature. And that's what God wants. In 1 Peter 2.1, he says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings as newborn babes. So you come into the, to the spiritual life. You're not, you're not born a Christian. You have to be born again to become a Christian, and you are a babe in Christ. You desire the sincere milk of the word. This is where you get your spiritual nourishment. For what purpose, he says, so that you may grow thereby. That's what God expects us to do. If so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And then over in 1 Peter 3.18, what does it say? Perfect tense, present tense. Grow continually. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. God expects you to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul said this to the Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 9, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, we do not cease to pray for you. Well, what are you praying for? Paul, what was your prayer for me about? He says, We pray for you and desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That's a biblical prayer. 
that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. How often do you hear other believers pray like that for one another? I know we have lists, we run down our lists, but do we pray like this for spiritual growth from one another? 1 Corinthians 3, 1, I, brethren, couldn't speak to you as unto spiritual, but, but as unto carnal, fleshly, even as unto babes in Christ. He wanted to speak to them as mature believers, but he had to speak to them as babes in Christ. He says, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto you were not able to bear it, and neither now are you able to bear it. Where was the growth? He had an expectation for growth, and they disappointed him. I wanted to feed you with meat, but you couldn't eat it. 39 years ago, Wendy's ran a commercial, which netted them, listen to this, netted them a 31% increase in revenue. And its catchphrase became iconic. Where's the beef? It was was three women sitting at a table in a restaurant, apparently a McDonald's or a Burger King, they didn't say. And they're admiring, two of them are admiring the fluffy bun, and the other one goes, where's the beef? Where's the beef? The writer of Hebrews aimed the same idea as the Jewish Christians in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 5.12. For when, for the time you ought to be teachers... In other words, you should be in a position spiritually now, he's saying, of instructing others. You have need for someone to teach you again the first principles or elementary teachings of the word of God. You are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. So what's your spiritual diet like? Milk or meat? But strong meat belongs to him that are of full age. That's maturity. Even, now listen, listen carefully to what he said. How do you get there? Even those who by reason of use, that's constant practice, that's spending time in the word of God, have their senses, right, their spiritual senses, exercised to discern both good and evil. The only way you're going to grow spiritually is by hearing the Word of God, reading the Word of God, and being like a Berean, studying the Word of God for yourself, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, applying that Word to your life. So where's the beef in your spiritual diet? Where's the solid food? Paul used the word, King James translates it meat. The Greek word is trophe. It means solid food, but it doesn't work with the Wendy's illustration. So I, I use meat. The weak, in Romans 14, needed the meat from God's word. And that would take some time for, for them to, to acquire that. And then to be able to, to digest it. So we have to be patient with one another. But let me also say this. Spiritual growth is not just about t- obtaining more theological education. It's not just about obtaining more Bible knowledge and reading 10, 20 chapters a day or whatever your practice is. It's about applying that truth to your life. You could read your Bible for 50, 60, 
70 years. And what would that profit you if that word of God that you have taken in has not transformed your life more and more into the image of Christ and you can't get along with another brother or sister in Christ? What good is all that Bible knowledge if it doesn't make you more like Jesus? Job 32.9 says, the abundant in years, that means the aged, could be well up there in their, in their years, may not be wise. Don't, don't assume that just because somebody's older and have walked with the Lord for 50 years that you're going to get the best biblical advice from them. You may or you may not. The abundant in years, the aged, may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice comes from knowledge and then putting that word of God into practice. Philippians 1.27 says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you, may, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's what God desires for every fellowship, Right? Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct, politueste, is the Greek word. You get the word polis in there, city. That's the Greek word for city, polis. So Paul was telling the believers in the Roman colony of Philippi to behave as good citizens. But more importantly, where is our citizenship? Where is our citizenship? It's in heaven. So we should be behaving on earth as heavenly-minded people who are nothing but strangers and pilgrims. We're just passing through. So if you're just passing through, I would just remind you this morning, don't be too obsessed about all of this world's goods and things. You're taking none of it with you. None of it with you. You know, our dear brother, our dear brother in Christ, John Morris, is, is, on, is in his last days. I talked with Dalta yesterday. And as of yesterday, they gave him 24 to 72 hours to live. He preached from this pulpit many times. He was a dear friend of mine. He led songs here in this church. He was one of our, our, our first elders. I have several books with notes that he's written me in my library here. And he wrote a lot of books and he accomplished a lot of things and he spoke all over on, on the God of creation. But you know, that's time is, time is finished. And everything he did here is, is over. And God will judge that. But he, he doesn't take anything with him. He just goes and his labors follow him in the Lord. That's the way we are to live our life with no regrets. Our citizenship, Paul said in Philippians 3.20, polituma is in heaven. From whence also we look for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul goes on in Philippians and he says in verse, chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without murmurings and disputing. Same word we hear in Romans chapter 14. This is Philippians 2.14. Why? Why should we all get along? That you may be blameless and harmless 
the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The world ought to know that we are Christians by our love for one another and by how we model Christ. And that's why Paul could tell tell believers, follow me as I follow Jesus. Now, I didn't mean to get too much off onto that, but I think it was important to understand that being strong in the faith is more than acquiring biblical or theological knowledge. Paul told the strong in Rome to bear with the weak. Be patient with the weak. You know what that is? That is strength in action. If you are patient with somebody who is not at the same spiritual place that you are in your life, that's commendable. That's why he goes on in Romans 4.14, If your brother is grieved with your meat fact that you have the liberty to eat meat now walkest thou not charitably don't destroy him with thy meat for whom Christ died don't let that become an issue between you and him give him time to grow up in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ don't ruin him don't destroy him by heaping your convictions upon him in a manner not worthy of Christ. That's why he says in chapter 15, verse 1, we then that are strong, mature in the word of God, ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, bear up with them, and not please ourselves. So from diet, we turn to days in Romans chapter 14, verse 5. It's also coupled with eating in verse 6. But what he tells us here is that in questionable matters, Each believer must be fully convinced for himself. One man esteems one day above another. Verse 5. Another esteems every day alike. No special days. What does Paul say? Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. And that's a compound word, fully persuaded. It means to bring to full measure. So you're studying something through, you're studying it, you're working at it, you're you're bringing it to, to full measure in your thoughts, and then you're persuaded that the Bible teaches this. But don't don't go jumping on people with your convictions unless you've really done your homework. And don't just take somebody else's opinion for it. Be like the Bereans who study the scriptures for themselves to see what things were so. Become fully convinced in your own mind. That takes work. Listen to what spiritually mature people say on a matter. Do your own Bible study. Compare Scripture with Scripture. Then he goes on in verse 6, Romans 14. He that regards the day regards it unto the Lord. He that regards not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. So you may... Worship one on one day, and another person may worship on another. They're not fully convinced in their own mind, but they're doing what they feel that they need to do, but they're doing it unto the Lord. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord. In other words, he's given God the glory for it. Whether he's eating meat or whether he's eating vegetables, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. For he giveth God thanks. I can sit down with, on a meal and 
say thanks and and just about everything that's put in front of me I'll be thankful for except a couple of things right <laughs> I mentioned last week I don't eat I, I'd be thankful for and listen under the right circumstances I would eat liver and spinach <laughs> have to be the right circumstances for he giveth God thanks and he that eateth not to the Lord he eateth not and 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 he giveth God thanks doesn't matter the key point there is that what you do must be done for, for the Lord, with the Lord in mind, for the glory of the Lord, with thanksgiving. That's the key point in all of this. It's also clear here that the Christian is not bound to celebrate any special days. You can celebrate Christmas if you want on December 25th. You don't have to if you don't want to. You can put a Christmas tree up if you want to. You don't have to put a Christmas tree up if you don't want to. None of that matters. Colossians 2.16, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, that's food, or in drink, or in respect of a, of a holy day, or of a new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which were shadows of things to come under the law, but the body is of Christ. And remember, I mentioned to you last week that all of those burdensome regulations pertaining to food and diet and clothing and things which just don't really make a whole lot of sense to us. They were just spiritual object lessons for Israel that God gave to that nation to remind them that they were a separate and holy people unto the Lord. That he had chosen them from all the nations of the world and he was setting them apart in unique ways even with their diet and their clothing and these special days. But all of that was just a shadow pointing to Christ eventually. Passover. Christ our Passover sacrifice for us. Pentecost. Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Lights. Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement. And of course the weekly Sabbath were among the Jewish special days of observations. Now, questions about the Sabbath and the observation of the Sabbath, that's been, a, for a long time, has been very controversial in the church. Which day should we worship? Is the Sabbath the seventh day? How about Sunday? Do you know, there was a town in the community of Piscataway, New Jersey, which has a park and a middle school bearing the original name of Quibbletown. And look what it says. This isn't made up. Quibbletown, a colonial hamlet which was so named because of dissension as to whether Saturday or Sunday is the Sabbath. That's in Newmarket, New Jersey today. That's from 1830. Which day should Christians worship on? There's nothing new under the sun, is there? Now, the Seventh-day Adventists insist that Christians must keep the Seventh-day Sabbath. I go through a long line of reasonings for this. Well, the first time the word Sabbath is used in the Bible is in Exodus 16.23. In Exodus, not Genesis. Before that time, the Sabbath was unknown. The Sabbath was assigned to the nation of Israel of the Mosaic Covenant, that they had been set apart as followers of the Most High God. And I give you all these scriptures. Exodus 31.16, Ezekiel 20.12, Nehemiah 9.14.
But it says in Exodus 31, 15, six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whosoever doth any work in the Sabbath day, uh uh-oh, shall what? Surely be put to death. Wherefore the children of who? Who? Israel. The church is not Israel. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. Now, a lot of times the Seventh-day Adventists will say, well, you need to go to the book of Genesis because the Sabbath is a creation ordinance like marriage and and we must keep the Sabbath just as we keep the the marriage covenant sacred. Well, it says this in Genesis 2.2, on the seventh day God ended his work which he hath made. And he rested, and that's your Hebrew word, Shavoth. He rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. He set it apart because that in it he had rested from all his work which God had created and made. Who rested? God. God alone rested. But not because he was tired. The the nation of Israel would later be reminded of his creation work when God instituted the Sabbath with Israel and they were to rest. The Sabbath as a day in which man was to cease from work did not begin in the Garden of Eden. God alone rested. As a matter of fact, there is no mention of the Sabbath for 2,500 years after that statement. 2,500 years. Now I want to give you a quote from a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm sure you're anxious for that. I think you'll appreciate it. After keeping it 28 years, that's the Sabbath, Saturday, after having persuaded more than a 1,000 other people to keep it, after having read my Bible through verse by verse more than 20 times, After having scrutinized to the very best of my ability every text, line, and word in the Bible, having the remotest bearing upon the Sabbath question, after having looked up all of these, both in the original and in many translations, and after having searched in lexicons, concordances, commentaries, and dictionaries, after having read armfuls of books on both sides of the question, After having read every line in all of the early church fathers upon this point, and after having read several works in favor of the seventh day, which were satisfactory to my brethren, after having debated in the question for more than a dozen times, after seeing the fruits of keeping it and weighing all the evidence in the fear of God, I am fully settled in my own mind and conscience that the evidence is against keeping the seventh day Sabbath. And he's written a book on it. This was taken from Seventh-day Adventist Renounced by D.M. Cartwright. Now, how many people do that kind of a work to get at the truth? He wanted to be fully persuaded in his own mind. And when he was fully persuaded in his own mind, he came to the conclusion that God doesn't command us to keep the Sabbath, the seventh-day Sabbath. When did the first Christians worship? On the Lord's day. John said he was in the Spirit 
right? In the book of Revelation 1.10, on the Lord's day, it doesn't say it's Sunday. Church history bears witness to that fact. But in John 21, 1 Corinthians 6, 16, 2, Acts 27, verse 1, they met on Sunday. They worshiped on Sunday. The Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus. And Christians are free from the Old Testament Sabbath laws. All the laws in the Old Testament couldn't save. They weren't designed to save anybody. Nor were they designed to sanctify anybody. So you have, you have salvation legalists who believe you have to keep these laws and do these things in order to be saved. And then you have sanctification legalists who will insist that you have to do all this stuff too in order to, to walk properly with the Lord. And then they begin to become extremely judgmental on other Christians who don't do exactly as they do. I'm thankful that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Hebrews 4.10 For he that has entered into his rest, he has also ceased from his own works as God did for, from his. Special diets, days, and drink are not for believers. You're free from the burdens of the law. But as I said, and I will say again, God has expectations of you and standards that you must follow as a Christian to model Christ. So you're not free to go in and out and sin and do whatever you want. Free from the law, oh, blessed condition, sin as I want and still have remission. That's not the way the song goes. In Galatians 4.11, Paul rebuked the Galatians for thinking God expected them to observe special days, including the Sabbath. Now, I want to say this, and this is controversial too. Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. You may have heard it differently. It is not. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21 of religious worship in the Sabbath day, number 8, Here's what they say. And this is a Presbyterian confession of faith. Many Presbyterian churches follow it and other churches as well. It's repeated in the 1689 uh, confession of faith, Baptist confession of faith. This Sabbath is kept holy unto the Lord, which men after due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, that's preparation for worship, which is commendable, do not only observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments. Don't take any home work home from you, from the job. And recreations. No golf. No football. None, none of that stuff. But also are taken up the whole time. This is the whole Sunday in public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. So they say, Westminster Confession of Faith, that Sunday is the Sabbath and you need to rest and you need to primarily worship God. No recreations of any kind, of any sort. Now, I think it's great on Sunday, if you can find time, read the Word of God and meditate on it. 
but you are not bound by a law and the word of God to do that because Sunday is the Lord's day. You know, it was said of the Puritans that their greatest fear was that someone somewhere was having a good time. Yeah. You don't, you don't have to sit around on Sunday and just meditate over and over and have no communication or so forth. I think you should just, I think Sunday should be one of the most joyous days of the week. I think you can get out in creation and enjoy the beauty of God and, and take your bike ride around the lake or whatever it is that you enjoy doing and give praise and thanks to God for it. So while we still follow the pattern of designating one day of the week for the Lord's people to gather and worship, we do not refer to it as the Sabbath. That was for Israel under the Old Covenant. The Bible is very clear about that. Nowhere in the Old Testament are the Gentile nations commanded to observe the Sabbath or condemned for failing to do so. Conclusion, everything in our life and in our death is not done for ourselves, but done for the Savior. For none of us lives, Romans 14, 7, to himself and no man dies to himself. For whether we live or whether we, whether we live, we live unto the Lord and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. Now listen, you ever hear the lie, tomorrow may never come? Usually associated with somebody's, you know, dream or goals. And tomorrow, I mean, listen, tomorrow always comes. And the, the clock is ticking. You're living now, I'm living now, but we're all going to die. Whether we live or whether we die. We're the Lord's. Death does not end things for the Christians. Thank God, right? We're going to be with Him. But every moment of your life and my, mo- my life until the time of our death, we are to live for the Lord. You are to live with eternity in view. The Bible says that God has put eternity in your heart. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. God has put something beyond yourself, beyond this life. God has put eternity in your heart. So who are you living for? What are you living for? Are you living for the Lord? 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says, you have been bought with a what? A price. What was the price? The precious blood of Jesus Christ. You are bought with a price. He purchased the church with his own blood. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Living or dying, we are the Lord's. Father, thank you this morning. Help us to understand these words and apply them to our life again. Thank you, Father, that you have given us everything that we need for a life of faith and godliness, Christian maturity. People are easily persuaded by other people. 
They're persuaded sometimes by articles they read or information they've gathered from the internet and they, they claim it for themselves without ever really carefully studying through the subject for themselves. We're followers of men. Help us to be followers of Christ. Help us to be spiritually mature believers, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to set aside all kind of quibbles and petty arguments and divisions and begin to exhibit the love that Jesus Christ had for us toward one another. Thank you, Lord, for this time, this Lord's day. This is the day that the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And we can do do the same thing tomorrow. And every day of the week, we live for the Lord. Help us to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.